Today on the show, I'm honored to have Dr. Michael Ward, who is a preeminent C.S. Lewis scholar and professor at Oxford University. He's the author of many books, including Planet Narnia and the Narnia Code. Dr. Ward is leading us through his discovery of the hidden meaning behind uh, one of C.S. Lewis's most beloved works, one of his most famous works, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia. He's answering the question, is there something that ties each of these seven books together and undergirds the theological stories which we all see at play within each of the, the chronicles? This is the question that Dr. Ward tries to answer in his books and in his, his studies and his presentation of this theory. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy what we have to talk about it's literally, as we say many times uh, throughout our conversation, jaw-dropping when you find out this information. I know it was for me the first time I heard it. So sit back and listen in and enjoy the show. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for being here today. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me, Kelsey. Glad to be with you. I would love if you want to just start right away and kind of give us an intro to who you are and what you do. We are here to talk about C.S. Lewis today, but would love to, to give people a little bit of background on who you are. Yeah, well, I am Michael Ward. I teach here at Oxford. I'm speaking to you today from Oxford, England. I'm a, an associate member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford. I'm also Professor of Apologetics at Houston Christian University in Texas. I teach for their online MA program in Christian Apologetics. And for most of my life, really, I've been interested in C.S. Lewis, and I did my PhD on his theological imagination, and I've spent last several decades uh, teaching, writing, speaking about Lewis, and indeed uh, Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton and that whole circle of of writers around Lewis uh, and influences upon Lewis. Um, and though I never set out to be a, a Lewis scholar uh, as a career, um, that's how it's turned out, and it's yeah. excellent. I'm really grateful that this is the, the line of work I've been called into. That's amazing. What what got you interested in Lewis in the first place? You said you kind of have always had an interest. Did it begin in childhood or? It did. Yeah, as it does for many people because of the yeah. Narnia books. My parents read the Narnia Chronicles to me and my two brothers when we were growing up. And uh, a lot of people don't get beyond Narnia, but I moved mm -hmm. quickly as, as soon as I could into Lewis's other fiction Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, and then into his Christian apologetics, like Mere Christianity and the Problem of Pain. Yeah. And I came here to Oxford. I did my BA, my undergraduate at Oxford, and studied English. And that's the first time I sort of officially studied Lewis. I, I wrote a short paper on him for my uh, finals. And uh, that led to a bit of teaching, a bit more writing, and it sort of snowballed into this career that that I've now got. That's awesome. Um, well, you are here today because one of the reasons you're here today is I actually had the opportunity to take a class from you when I was studying abroad with my university in Oxford and shout out to Aveline Christian University for setting that up. Um, and the class was really, I think, probably a year or two after your book, Planet Narnia, which I see in your background first came out. And so I didn't know it going into the class, but that's really what we uh, what we uh, studied and what we talked about and what you taught us. And I can still remember um, when you first kind of pulled everything together to introduce this idea that Planet Narnia revolves around. Um, it's this discovery that you have made about the Chronicles of Narnia. And I remember everyone literally jaws dropping. I remember after the class, everyone talking about it and just really excited about it. Um, and it's still one of the most memorable classes that I, I took uh, during my college years. So that's really what I, I want to get people to today, because 
um, your work on the Chronicles of Narnia and this this idea that you have um, uncovered on the way that Lewis kind of uh, organized and wrote the Chronicles of Narnia is, is really revolutionary and very exciting. Um, so yeah, I want to spend our time today uh, there. And I was wondering if maybe to start, if you could kind of lay out the problem for people or really, I think in your book, you introduced three problems that you were trying to solve when you first kind of uncovered this, this discovery that we're going to get to. Mm. Well, let's just focus on the, on the main problem that we can leave the other two to one side. I uh, mustn't get okay. into too much detail, but the, yeah. the main problem that people have found with the Narnia books is that they, they seem to be on the surface a little bit random, a bit uh, haphazard in the way they've, been assembled. Tolkien was one of Lewis's great friends, and Tolkien had the first few chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe read aloud to him by C.S. Lewis as he was mm. writing the book. And Tolkien rather famously took against the, the way Lewis had assembled the story out of so many disparate mythological and literary traditions. Yeah. So you have, you know, for instance, you have English children who seem to have come straight out of the pages of an Inesbit sort of Edwardian story. Mm. You have centaurs and fauns and dryads and naiads from Greek and Roman mythology. You have a white witch character, fresh from the pages, it seems, of a Hans Anderson fairy tale, you know, the Hans Anderson's Snow Queen. Mm. You have Father Christmas, uh, you know, a sort of popularised figure from Christian uh, tradition yeah. based on Saint Nicholas. Um, and how do all these different elements come together in a way which is coherent and and makes sense? Tolkien couldn't understand how, how Lewis was working. And because Tolkien has become so famous, his attitude to Narnia has become well known too. And, and lots of people have thought that Tolkien was much more familiar with the Narnia books than he actually was. He, I don't think he read all mm. seven books even once, let alone repeatedly and carefully. Mm. Um, but of course, it's not likely that C.S. Lewis, who was such a rigorous and consistent thinker, would have just slopped the books together any old how. Yeah. So people have thought, okay, well, they might look a little bit problematic at the surface level of, of the story elements, but Perhaps we can find a deeper level of design and patterning uh, at the the level of the biblical parallels, because mm -hmm. Lewis himself once said that the whole Narnia series was about Christ. Aslan, the Christ character, is the only character who appears in all seven books. So maybe it's that biblical allegorical aspect, not that mm -hmm. Lewis called them allegories, but you know we'll use that for now as a, as a fair enough term. Maybe it's that which provides the series with design and coherence. But the only problem with that, once you look at and start looking carefully at that, is that, well, three of the books are very obviously biblical or, you know, have biblical parallels. You've got the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the first book, which is a sort of retelling of the gospel story. Aslan dying and rising for the traitor Edmund as Jesus dies yes. and it rises for the sins of the world. You have The Magician's Nephew, which is a sort of retelling of the creation story from Genesis. Aslan singing Narnia into being. And in the last battle, you have a, a Narnian equivalent of the last battle, of the, of the, of the last book of the Bible, um, mm. the book of Revelation, the final judgment, uh, the end times. Aslan judging the world. And the biblical parallels in those three books are all pretty clear and obvious. If you've got any biblical knowledge, you're, you're likely to right. pick up on those sorts of connections. But those are only three out of the seven books. So it's less than half the series. Yeah. When you look at the other four books, well, Aslan is still present, yes, and he's still Christ-like in various ways. But there's no major element or episode of, of his life and his ministry that Lewis is reimagining. I mean, there's no equivalent, for instance, of the of the um, Annunciation and the Nativity of Christ. Yeah. Aslan being born into Narnia as a lion cub. You don't get that. You don't get a Narnian equivalent of the Ascension of 
Christ. You don't get a Narnian version of the day of Pentecost when Christ sends his spirit on the church. And you might you might have expected Lewis to do that sort of thing, given what he's done in, in those three books I just talked about. Right. So when you look at the biblical connections between Narnia and and Christian doctrine, Christian tradition, it works well for three books, but not so well for the other four. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason or pattern or coherence. And and some people say, well, who cares? You know, the books work well enough. Um and they were only for children anyway, so we shouldn't take them that seriously, should we? <laughs> but I like to say in response, well, first of all, the books have become fantastically popular and successful. They've become sort of now permanent features of the canon right. of English children's fiction. And is, it, mm-hmm. is that really the way that a classic work is put together, just sort of randomly, without much care and forethought? And secondly, when, when you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you know that he was a fantastically intricately minded person. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, he, he said about his own poetry that the poems which look as if they're in free verse are often in the most complicated meters of all. Mm-hmm. And Lewis was a medieval scholar. He studied all the, the literature of the Middle Ages and he and he's, in his academic writings, he says about medieval writers that they love to present us with something that can't be taken in at a glance. Everything Mm. leads to everything else in these writers, he says, but often by very intricate paths. Mm. They love to present us with something which at first looks planless, though all is planned. He says that about medieval writers. And as a medievally minded writer himself, he could be expected, I think, to imitate the example of, of those writers that he studied so carefully in his academic work. So, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, lots of other people have said, Mm -hmm. there must be some deeper level of of imaginative design. And and all sorts of different theories have been suggested, like the seven deadly sins and the seven sacraments and any seven people can think of, really. (laughs) But the one seven, which is all over Lewis's works, the seven heavens, the seven planets, had not been seriously considered until it occurred to me one day when I was halfway through my PhD researches into mm. Lewis's imagination. And uh, that's the idea I had, and that's what has turned into this book, Planet Narnia. Can you tell us a little bit what led you to um, that that idea that it had to be, if there was anything that was kind of joining these books together, that it, that it was the seven planets? Well, it was a bit of a eureka moment, really. I was lying in bed one night and reading a long poem that Lewis had had written about the planets. And the planets, I ought to say, I'd just back up a moment and talk about what are these seven planets, these seven heavens. The best way to get into that is by thinking of the names of the days of the week. Hmm. Saturday, Saturn Day. Sunday, the day of the sun, Monday, the day of the moon, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are the days respectively of Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, and Venus. If you think in Spanish or French, it's a bit clearer how those planets relate to those Mm. days. Martes, Mardi for Tuesday, Mars Day, Miercoles, Mercredi for Wednesday, Wodin, and so on. and these are the seven planets. These are the seven heavens that have been known since time immemorial. They can all be seen with the naked eye. Um, the, the other planets, like Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, uh, were only discovered after the invention of the telescope. Mm. Now, these seven planets over the centuries uh, acquired all sorts of symbolic associations they were held to influence people in different ways you know so the the moon luna makes you a lunatic for instance and the sun with its golden rays uh, will turn base metal into gold that sort of mm. thing um, and lewis loved that tradition uh, he describes the seven planets as spiritual symbols of permanent value mm. which are especially worthwhile he says in his own generation Hmm. Saturn, why did he think why did he think that for his generation well he, yes he, he he his own generation was the generation that went through the first world war 
Lewis himself was an officer in the British Army during the Great War, and he was very nearly killed. Nearly three quarters of a million British servicemen were killed. So Lewis goes on to say that of Saturn, we know more than enough, because Saturn Mm -hmm. was associated with death and disaster. Think of... um, Think of the Grim Reaper with his sickle or his scythe cutting people down. The Grim Reaper or Old Father Time is based on earlier pictures of Saturn. That's how Saturn is often depicted in in medieval art. Um, So Lewis would say of his own generation that it was Saturnocentric, that it was born under Saturn. It was sort of doomed uh, to have a terrible time in this world. of Saturn we know more than enough, he says. Mm. But who does not need to be reminded of Jove, of Jupiter? Because Jupiter was the best planet, the most fortunate and blessed planet, uh, symbolically speaking. Uh, and so Lewis can say that we need to be reminded of ju- jovial qualities, of prosperity and magnanimity and festivity. If we're inclined to think that Saturn, this bleak and dismal influence, is the only way of symbolically representing spiritual reality, we should think again. Saturn's mm-hmm. not the only planet, and he's not even the best of the seven. Jupiter is, is the best, and there are, in any case, another five, making the septet, um, into which you can slot really the whole of human experience from birth under Venus. Venus was associated with fertility, um, all the way through from Venus to, yeah, death under Saturn and everything in between. Hmm. Um, so that's why Lewis loved the planets as symbols, as archetypes of different ways of of, of representing our spiritual experience. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he wrote this long poem about the planets, which, as I say, I was reading in bed one night, late at night. It was about 1130 I was just about to turn my light off and go to sleep um, when I my eye fell upon some words about Jupiter and the jovial influence as Lewis understood it. And he says that when Jupiter dominates, um, we may expect winter past and guilt forgiven. Hmm. That's that's a jovial effect, as it were, symbolically speaking, the passing of winter, the forgiving of guilt. Now, if you know The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you know that that rather neatly (laughs) summarises the main main plot of that story because the White Witch has made it always winter, never Christmas, but her kingdom of ice and snow passes at the coming of the jovial Aslan, who's the king of the wood, the king of the beasts, Um, and Edmund, the traitor, his guilt is forgiven Mm. as, as this true king of Narnia sacrifices himself for Edmund's sake. So that was what really sort of made a light bulb go on in my mind. And I thought, ah, maybe there's a connection between all seven chronicles and all seven planets. And it was very easy to see that there was. Once you were sort of clued into it, it it became pretty obvious, I think. And it's Mm. amazing in a way that it hadn't been seen before, because once you do see it, uh, you can't not see it. Like you were saying, with you and your classmates, um, the jaw drops. I mean, my own jaw dropped when I saw all these links. I thought, how yeah. how could I not have seen these before? Uh, it's very beautiful and um, very skillful on Lewis's part. Mm-hmm. Used used this symbolism so intricately and also secretly. Um, yes. The reasons for his secrecy we may come on to. Um, but yeah. you asked how the idea struck me, and that's how it came about. Yeah, that's I I was actually going to ask you about the secrecy aspect of it, because I think uh, at the kind of at the forefront of your book, you're addressing that as perhaps a criticism of, well, why hasn't this been discovered before? And could he could he have actually kept it a secret? Why would he have decided to keep it a secret? And you you talk a little bit about the fact that Lewis was probably a very, or maybe not very, but somewhat of a secretive person himself. Mm. Um, and I found that really striking because not only of how prolific he was, but also because of these, he, you know, he's known for having such deep friendships 
throughout his um, lifetime. Can you talk a little bit about what evidence you found to uh, support this idea that he was somewhat secretive and what you mean by by that idea? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I advanced this idea about Narnia and the planets, even to myself, even before I you know, started talking publicly about it, um, the immediate sort of counter argument is, well, why would he not have told anybody about it? Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to meet that objection, I, I began to explore the fact that, that Lewis could indeed be very secretive sometimes when he wanted to be. The most obvious example of his capacity for secretiveness is the fact that when he got married in his late 50s, he kept his marriage secret for the best part of a year. <laughs> um, married Joy Davidman. If you've seen the film mm -hmm. Shadow, you know all about this. Um, and it was a secret marriage. <laughs> Only the, the registrar and the witness really were told. Not, not even close mm -hmm. friends like Tolkien were told for the best part of a year. That's amazing. Amazing. The whole, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to do. The whole point of a marriage is that it's a public yeah. relationship. Right. <laughs> you have private friendships, but a marriage must be public by definition, you would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis married Joy, and she didn't take his name. She acquired British citizenship by marrying him, and that was the main mm. purpose of, of the uh, marriage. But they didn't live together as husband and wife, and nobody knew about it. Extraordinary. <laughs> so a man who can do that can easily keep a literary structure secret mm. if he wants to. Uh, but there are other examples, too, of his secretiveness. I mean, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, left out so many really important things about his early life. Mm. Uh, one of his friends said it shouldn't have really been called Surprised by Joy. It, it should have been called Suppressed by Jack. <laughs> Jack was his nickname. Everybody yeah. called five Staples Lewis Jack. Um, and there are many other examples. I, I won't bore you and your listeners yeah. with, with all the ways in which Lewis could be private and guarded and compartmentalized. But it's entirely in his character to do that mm. sort of thing. It shouldn't surprise us. Okay, so once you've established that it's sort of possible, well, then you've got to actually make the substantive case that it happened. Um, yeah. And that's you know, what Planet Narnia is all about. And I've got a shorter version of Planet Narnia called the Narnia Code. Um, there's even a, a BBC documentary based on th this work. Uh, and that documentary is also called the Narnia Code. Um, okay. But the, 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 the detailed case is advanced in Planet Narnia. Yeah. Um, and the question as to why, why he would keep it secret mm -hmm. is a very interesting question there's a lot that could be said um but i think the the first thing to say is 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 that this symbolism is designed uh by lewis to be enjoyed not contemplated and that distinction yes. between enjoyment and contemplation was really crucial for lewis yeah. by enjoyment he meant being immersed in something looking along it rather than looking yeah. at it when you contemplate something, you're outside it, inspecting it from a distance, and you're sort of consciously aware of what you're looking at. But mm -hmm. if you're inside an experience or inside, you know, a, a set of symbols, just as it were, knowing the world through that lens, then you don't, with your contemplative consciousness, look at it. It's not mm -hmm. an object of your vision. It's the medium of your vision. And therefore, it's invisible to you. It's like, you know, I'm looking yeah. at you through these glasses and I, I'm not actually looking at the lenses. I'm looking through the lenses and my, the lenses enable me to bring you into focus. Mm -hmm. But if if I was looking at the lens, the, the whole purpose of these spectacles would be frustrated because, you know, a lens that you can't see through that's, you know, scratched or dirty is not a good pair of glasses. Mm. Um, and so likewise with this symbolism, Lewis is using it, as it were, to focus the, the reader's mind and attention on a, a certain set of, of data, you might say. Um, mm. and he can't alert you to that fact without frustrating the very thing he's trying to achieve. So it has to yeah. be kept secret. Yeah, that's um, that distinction I is probably the 
most memorable thing I have from your class, uh, the essay, I think he writes that he writes about that and it's called Meditations on a Toolshed. And I can't tell you how many times I've looked that up and I've even brought it up in conversations on this podcast mm. because I think there's actually uh, a theological takeaway from that as well in the difference between contemplating something from the outside theologically, you know, whether it's through systematic theology versus being in the experience or, you know, in our, in my tradition, we would word it probably more like being given the experience of baptism or absolution, um, which is really amazing. And I think helpful for, for people. Um, but the, it is this literary tool that he, he uses and is beautiful when you think about the, not only the intricacy, but the foresight he had and the, um, dedication to keep it hidden for that purpose even mm. when someone like Tolkien is <laughs> trashing his work I think that that's pretty amazing that he would just stay silent about it yeah but you're quite right it has a really interesting theological dimension to it this idea mm. of enjoyment as opposed to contemplation because how is it that we know God um you can, as it were, study God from an external mm -hmm. point of view. You can do religious studies. You can examine the Bible as a historical document. Uh, and you can look at all the, the influences from the period and the, the ways in which the different books of the Bible uh, correspond to the genres in which the authors were working. Um, that's one way of, as it were, looking at Christianity but yeah. does that make you a Christian? Not at all. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the Christian life is, a, is the life of faith. Um, mm -hmm. It's a personal relationship. You're not, as it were, studying God as if God is merely a subject or rather mm -hmm. an object to be looked at. Um, you know, that in a way is is the very opposite of a personal relationship you know people mm. always say in you don't objectify me you know <laughs> it, it's horrible to be objectified by someone as if you're just a slab of meat on a laboratory dissecting table mm. um you've got to be in a relationship with god and that knowledge by acquaintance that personal knowing inevitably involves a a kind of trust a kind of faith um, a kind of love, yeah, which even a young child is capable of, or even someone you know with with very limited mental capacity, someone who couldn't read the Bible or couldn't conceptualize ideas about Christian theology, nonetheless can know and love and serve God and his neighbor as himself, yeah. um, and that person would be as it were, looking along God rather than looking yeah. at God. And that's, that itself, that's very relevant to the, uh, you know, our Christian belief in God as a trinity of persons. Mm. If you think about how in Christian theology we, we believe that the Holy Spirit gets inside us, you know, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So they, as it were, take in the third person of the Holy Trinity into their very being. Yeah. Um, and as a result, they're able to look at Jesus and see in him the son of God. But unless your eyes are enlightened by the spirit, what do you see when you look at Jesus? You just see a Jewish rabbi. You know, mm. he might have interesting things to say, but you wouldn't have the eye of faith that would enable you to to see the reality of who Jesus is. You could look at him, but you're not really looking along him because you need to have his spirit inside you in order to see him as he really is. And once once you are looking along the spirit and looking at Jesus, you can see the father because yeah. he who has seen me has seen the father. So mm. that the very idea of the Trinitarian nature of God allows for this interesting interplay between looking at and looking along. And I think that's one of the fascinating things that Lewis is playing with, you know, imaginatively in the, in the way that he uses this planetary symbolism, because for instance, you know, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is, I think, constructed to be a generally jovial world. You know, the whole structure of the story is mm -hmm. jovial. It's winter past and guilt forgiven. And it's a story of kingship. 
Aslan is the king of the wood, the king of the beasts, and the children become kings and queens at the end of the story themselves. So right. they're, the children in the book are growing up into Aslan's jovial nature, so mm. to speak. But they're, n- neither the children in the story nor we, the readers of the story, are looking at the jovial superstructure. Lewis just, as it was, as it as it as it were, just throws us in. Yeah, He's, it's almost as if it's infused with that aspect. Is mm. that a good way to think about it? it is, yes, in, infused. Uh, it's absorbed. It's permeating. It's saturating. Yeah. It's, it's like an atmosphere. Mm. And I mean, this is an interesting aspect of why I think Lewis was interested in the planets because the planets as they were understood in the Middle Ages, and indeed in biblical times, um, were held to influence people on Earth and events and even the metals in Earth's crust. And they, the planets, as it were, shed their rays upon the Earth um, and brought about their effects, not directly, but by first modifying the air of Earth's atmosphere. Hmm. And Lewis, in his academic writings, talks about how in the Middle Ages, if you went to your doctor with an illness and and your doctor couldn't immediately explain what was wrong with you, the doctor would probably say something, uh, well, it's just the influence which is currently in the air. And if he was an Italian doctor, he would say it is the influenza, which is currently in the air. And that very word, influenza, has come down into our medical dictionaries. And we talk now getting influenza, not realising that it's got a connection to planetary influence. How um, interesting. So atmosphere is a really important sort of concept to have in mind in this whole discussion because, you know, I was just using the analogy of looking through glasses, but just think also of the, uh, the analogy that we might use if we talk about breathing. You and I, we've been talking now for half an hour, whatever it is, and we've each taken many hundreds of breaths. You know, our lungs are working, our nostrils and our mouths are bringing in air and we're exhaling it, inhaling it continually. But I haven't consciously been taking any of those breaths because, Mm. you know, thanks be to God, my lungs work and the air in this room is clean. But if I had asthma or emphysema, or if if the air in this room was smoky or poisoned with something, I'd very quickly, as it were, look at the process of breathing. But as it is, I'm looking along the process of breathing. I'm enjoying it. I'm inside it. I don't have to, you know, bring it to contemplative consciousness. Yeah. Um, And, you know, think of atmosphere in connection with what I was just saying about the Holy Spirit receive the Holy Spirit, breathe in the Holy Spirit. Um, So C.S. Lewis, interestingly, says when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not one of the divine persons that you look at. You should think of the Holy Spirit as inside you or behind you. Mm. In other words, someone, you know, that person of the Holy Trinity whom you enjoy, you are immersed in, you imbibe. He is infusing his being into you and yours into him. That's that's part of you know the the, the Christian life, uh, and so that's that that sort of invisible and insensible aspect of the Christian's experience is exactly what Lewis is trying to represent imaginatively yeah. in the Narnia stories by this invisible and and deliberately uh, disguised symbolic structure ask a little bit about a little bit more about the medieval cosmology and why because it's obviously there are these deep theological implications but if you aren't familiar with the differences maybe even between modern astronomy and medieval cosmology you might be missing that a little bit can you talk about lewis's general fascination with medieval cosmology um, and the and the idea of the heavens and how that that plays into this overall atmosphere idea that we are talking about. Yeah, well, it's worth remembering that although Lewis is best known for the Narnia books and indeed for mere Christianity and, and his other works of Christian apologetics, 
he he was professionally an academic, a, a literary yes. historian, and the biggest mm-hmm. book he ever wrote was an analysis of the literature produced in the 16th century. He wrote a 700-page book called English <laughs> Literature in the 16th Century Excluding Drama. <laughs> um, and interestingly, he opens that massive book with a long discussion of the new astronomy that came in in the 16th century when Nicholas Copernicus revolutionized astronomy with his theory of the geocentric of the heliocentric cosmos you know the sun-centered mm. cosmos the idea that the earth goes around the sun as opposed to the old idea that the sun goes around the earth and all the mm. planets go around the earth that was the traditional way of understanding cosmology and then the copernicus revolutionizes it and it was naturally something that c.s lewis studied in great depth because that was his period and he wanted to understand the imaginative and artistic and literary effects of the of that scientific revolution because of course the kind of cosmos you believe yourself to be living in will have a major effect sooner or later on the kinds of stories that you tell, the kind of novels and plays and poems that you write. Um, So that's why Lewis, from an academic point of view, was so interested in it. But also he was interested in it uh, from a sort of spiritual and devotional point of view, because he he had a great love for Psalm 19. You know, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Lewis said that Psalm 19 was the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Hmm. Um, And he was also quite a keen amateur astronomer. You know, he had a telescope on the balcony of Hmm. his bedroom. He liked going to the local observatory. He he would point out unusual conjunctions of the planets in the night sky. It was quite a, a keen hobby for him. So academically, devotionally, personally, in in lots of different ways, he was interested in the heavens and the planets and the idea of planetary influence. And he thought that it was just a very helpful way of of talking about spiritual reality. You know, you can use the idea of planetary influence as a symbol for God's influence. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to say that the Narnia books are all about the planets. No, they're all about the Christian life, but yeah. by means of the planets. That's, right. that's the important distinction to get in, in place. Yeah, that's helpful. You have um, this quote, I, I, I think it's maybe at the end of the book, I'm not sure, but um, I think it's a quote from Lewis. It says, the only possible basis for Christian apologetics is a proper respect for paganism. And in that he's, I, I bring this up because he's, um, I think you're talking about the fact that medieval cosmology is not necessarily has not necessarily been proven true and Lewis would have recognized that but he didn't have this issue with um looking at something and seeing that it had meaning uh whether it was overtly Christian or not I don't know if I'm getting at at the right sense of that but can you talk I just found that quote really interesting because I think and particularly maybe in America there's a lot of uh Christians that would you know be a little alarmed by by that thought. Can you talk about what that idea meant for Lewis and what it could mean for for us today as we approach apologetics? Yes. The only possible basis for Christian apologetics, Lewis says, is a proper respect for paganism. Um, Now, there's a lot about paganism which is wrong and needs to be turned away from. But there are some aspects of paganism um, which are worth looking back at. That is to say, respecting. That's what the word respect literally means. Respect. Mm -hmm. Um, And think of a good biblical example in the case of of Paul, the apostle, when he goes preaching to the Athenians in Mm. Acts 17. uh, Yes, 17. Um, You remember he... He goes around the Acropolis um, and he sees uh, an altar to an unknown God. And then Paul 
in addressing the men of Athens says, um, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Um, even some of your poets, he says to the Athenians, have, have told us that we live and move and have our being in God and that yeah. we are indeed his offspring. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting there some of your poets, some of the Greek pagan poets. Epimenides mm -hmm. and Aratus were the two poets, in fact, that he's talking about, though they're not named in the Book of Acts. But we know that Aratus and Epimenides wrote poems about Zeus, who is the, the king of the Greek pantheon, the, the, the main god in, in Greek paganism. In Zeus, we live and move and have our being, is what St. Paul is quoting, for we are indeed Zeus's offspring. Mm. Again, he's, quoting, he's quoting pagan poetry. Yeah. yeah. Not, of, not, of course, because he's wanting to encourage people to worship Zeus. He's using it as a springboard in his presentation of the Christian gospel. He's, as it were, respecting his Greek audience, and he's finding some common ground with them. They understand that we live and move and have our being in God. They understand that we're God's offspring. They're wrong in calling God Zeus, but they're right in these other respects. You know, they don't need to, their incomplete and, and inadequate religious knowledge is not doesn't need to be absolutely obliterated. It can be right. worked with. It, there's some yeah. common ground that Paul is finding with them. You know, he's meeting them where they are. Where else indeed can they be met? And he's working with their religious knowledge and adding to it and correcting it and refining it. So, so as to say that God is not called Zeus. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he will go on to say. Yeah. But he's respected paganism enough to bring his audience with him. And that's precisely what C.S. Lewis, many centuries later, would be doing in his own respect for, uh, well, classical mythology and classical cosmology, and indeed uh, medieval astrology. Now, that word astrology also makes a lot of Christians think, oh dear, this is dangerous. Um, but it shouldn't. There's, there's no. no necessary reason why astrology is a dirty word. Because astrology literally just means study of the stars. Right. You, know, you, you have biology, the study of life. You have geology, the study of the earth. You have anthropology, the study of humanity. Astrology, study of the stars. Why wouldn't you study the stars? You know, the mm -hmm. stars are beautiful. The stars are things that God has created. And there's a long tradition of Christian astrology. Yeah, um, Philip Melanchthon, who is, you know, mm. was Martin Luther's right-hand man, was well-known for studying astrology. So, yeah, we it's not something that is a completely uh, foreign concept at all to Christian history. No. There are three things that the Christian church has traditionally stood out against. And Lewis talks about this in one of his academic write, writings. He says, the church has always said you mustn't worship the planets. Well, that's obvious. You mustn't commit an idolatry. These celestial objects may be beautiful. They may, may even possibly be powerful, hmm. um, but they're not divine and they mustn't be worshipped. Lewis also says you mustn't regard the planetary influences as determinative. They may have an effect upon you. And it's hard to deny that you know, the sun has an effect upon us. <laughs> I mean, there would be no life on Earth if there was no sun. And we all feel brighter when the sun is up. We all mm. tend to feel better in the summer than in the winter. So, of course, the sun has an effect upon us, but it doesn't determine our personalities. It, it, it doesn't overrule our free will and our responsibility yeah. before God. So the church said you mustn't regard planetary influence as controlling you, even though it might give you a disposition. And thirdly, Lewis points out that the church stood out against what he calls the lucrative and politically undesirable practice of astrologically grounded predictions. Hmm. So in other words, you can think of, you know, some court astrologer in the Middle Ages who goes to the king and says, oh, king, you, the, the planets foretell great success if you go to battle next Friday week. 
Um, but all the while, that court astrologer is in the pay of the, the foreign nation, and he's tricking the king into, and he's making a lot of money in the process um, by this these astrologically grounded predictions. And the church stood out against that too. But in general, the church was quite happy to accept the idea that the planets influence us because it, it seemed to be entirely consistent with the Bible. Yeah. You know, think of in the book of Judges, the stars in their courses were fighting against Sisera, we, we read in the book of Judges. You know, there seems to be an active influence of the planets in a, in a, in a human battle. Hmm. We've already talked about Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Yeah. And if you come down to the, the New Testament and Matthew's gospel, think of the wise men who come from the east. Right. We have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And they go to Bethlehem and they worship the Christ child. But they were, they were magi. They were wise men. They were wise in the study of the stars. They were astrologers. Hmm. And their astrology led them to worship Christ. So astrology is not a necessarily bad thing at all. It just has to be kept within suitable confines, yeah. as indeed uh, all uh, elements of, of human activity need to be restrained and disciplined. Now that we know this discovery or this key to the Chronicles of Narnia and even this way in which Lewis chose to construct them, how should it inform, if it was meant to be kept secret in a sense, how... How should it inform how we read um, his works, how we look at his works, both the Chronicles of Narnia and his other his other books? Well, firstly, it should it it should um, stop us from dismissing Narnia as a hodgepodge and a mishmash. Yeah. You know, the, the books were much more sophisticatedly and carefully written than that. Uh, so we, we, we we've got to give. Lewis's due respect in that regard um, and secondly now that we know this secret some people say to me well if it was meant to be kept secret how can you possibly divulge the secret haven't you just <laughs> ruined the whole thing which is a good point um, but Lewis wanted to keep it secret because he was the author of the books and he was wanting to have a sort of imaginative impact upon his readers and communicate this idea of enjoyment through imaginative means. But I'm not the author of the Narnia books. I'm a literary critic and theologian, and I'm, I'm wanting to understand how these brilliant books were constructed and why. Yeah. So it's a, it's a totally legitimate thing for me and the readers of Planet Narnia to want to investigate these matters. It would be improper if we, as it were, said to ourselves, well, now we understand that the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is constructed out of Jupiter symbolism, then we don't need to read the book anymore. <laughs> That's okay. not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I'm just saying if you, want to if you want to get the best out of Narnia, it helps to know all this background stuff because then you can put more into the reading experience and as a result, you can get more out. You can read more intelligently, more knowledgeably, more sensitively. And therefore, the reading experience is enriched. Mm. At least that's how I have found my reading experience when I've gone back to Narnia. I, I now enjoy them even more than I used to. Um, and that's the whole point, isn't it, of, of study? that right. it's not an end in itself. It's just a way of enriching and enlarging your responses to the world mm. um, as a way of, you know, loving God with, with our mind as well as with heart and soul and strength. Mm. Um, I mean, Lewis was a, an academic. He, there's nothing anti-intellectual about Lewis. And he would want people, I think, to understand his books as fully as they possibly could. And I'm sure there's loads of stuff which I'm missing because mm. my own classical education for instance is very limited uh, whereas Lewis had a brilliant classical education and, and was reading Homer and the original Greek from you know early years yeah. um, and so a lot of this symbolism just came to his mind almost unbidden he didn't need to do a lot of research about it because he'd been steeping himself in this symbolism um, all his life wow. when he wrote Narnia uh, in his early 50s yeah in a way does it get does 
understanding the the key that you've discovered get us to contemplation uh that can also deepen our enjoyment like it to me it seems like there's a little bit of a interplay there that's deepened because we need both um when we understand what's what's going on yeah while you're reading planet nine or while you're listening to this podcast and me going on about all these details you are as it were stepping out of enjoyment into contemplation you know we are looking at the way lewis structured these books right which is okay that that's a legitimate use of our minds and our time but the whole purpose of that is so that when we next go back to the reading of the Narnia books, we can enjoy them more fully. We can immerse ourselves in them more intelligently. And so, yeah, there's an interplay between contemplation and enjoyment. Well, that's wonderful. Dr. Ward, I appreciate your time so much. This has been great, and I'm looking forward to people learning more. So thank you. Thank you for the time. My pleasure, Kelsey. Thank you for having me. Outside Ourselves is a 1517 podcast. To learn more about all of our podcasts and all of our shows, please go to 1517.org forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want more C.S. Lewis content, then you are in luck. Our, then you are in luck. 1517's annual conference, Here We Still Stand, is actually focused on the works of C.S. Lewis this year, and it's happening later this week. While you can't get tickets anymore, tickets are sold out, uh, we do have a live stream that is free to anyone who wants to tune in. Uh, You can find information about that live stream in the show notes, and you could also find it by just going to 1517's homepage. I hope that you will tune in. There's going to be a lot of really amazing presentations. Feel free to join anytime that you're available this Thursday through... Saturday. And I will be back here in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Outside Ourselves.